The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Remember, that's, that's aping the title of Jesus in Revelation 1, the one who was and is and is to come. The beast is a fake Jesus. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay, just real quick, we talked about this last week. This is describing what we saw last week, where the beast shares his power with the second beast, who then turns on the beast. The kings of the nations turn on the beast to fight against him. Uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 18. After that, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So the city's destroyed, and now the wild animals can move into the, to the forsaken city. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow, mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, 
for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. And what follows is a list of a pretty accurate list of what Rome traded in. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. Literally, it's, in Greek, it doesn't say slaves, it says bodies. It's just a very dehumanizing way to talk about human beings. She trades in bodies. That's right, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so that's symbolic for this huge stone Rome being thrown into the sea and drowned and forgotten. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John chapter 3. Glory to you, O Lord. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please stay standing for the sermon hymn.
So Revelation 17, 18, we'll look at that this morning. Like I said, this is about Rome. You'll notice in verse 3, uh, the, uh, uh, John's carried away in the spirit into a wilderness. He saw a woman sitting on the beast. We talked about the beast last week. The beast is, here in Revelation, it's Nero. But remember, it's not code for Nero. It's a symbol of Nero. Now, when John writes this, Nero's been dead for about 40 years. So he's using Nero as kind of like the archetypical emperor. On the back of Nero is the city of Rome, though. We talked about the beast last week. But the political entity of Rome is what's being judged as well here. You, you know it's Rome, too. I should point this out. that um, well, Babylon was a con- common nickname for Rome by Jews in the first century. Uh, because like Babylon which had held God's people in exile in the Old Testament. Uh, Rome, too, was the overlord, which ruled over them, demanded emperor worship once a year, uh, demanded obeisance. So Babylon, it's a common nickname amongst uh, 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 Jews for uh, Rome. But in case you were wanting something more explicit, in verse 9 of chapter 17, John says, this calls for a mind with wisdom, or the angel says to John, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Rome has been called, I mean, since ancient times, Rome has been referred to as the city of seven hills, the city on seven mountains. So it's a super clear reference that what he's talking about is Rome, the Roman Empire. The bulk of this reading here, 17 and 18, is a classic lament, which uh, the book of Lamentations is a lament. It's kind of based on Isaiah 47, which is also a lament in the Old Testament for the literal city of Babylon. We don't have laments in our culture, but it, you know, it's what you do when, when you mourn. We, we, we've moved away from um, laments like this and, and, have, and, and like mourning. We, we, we're kind of whistling in the graveyard in our culture when it comes to death. And, and we, we've moved away from understanding this sort of genre of like broken-hearted lament over the fall of something beautiful or powerful or, or worthy. So I was, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, Harry and Kate and I were at, um, at a, a coffee place up in Alton and, uh, yesterday, and there was a guy who was in front of us in line, and there was a young girl waiting on him, and she said to him, she said, well, you are dressed up today. He was wearing a suit. And she said, what's going on? Why, you know, why are you dressed up? And he said, well, I just came from a celebration of life. And she said, well, that sounds like fun. And he didn't say anything. He just, you know, took his coffee and left. But, uh, of course, she didn't, she, doesn't, she doesn't know what a celebration of life is. She probably, Kate said she probably thought it was a birthday party, which is probably true. He, though, he didn't want to say funeral. You can't say funeral. That would imply that there's death waiting around the corner. So he, he calls it a celebration of life. Well, I'm not saying that's bad to say that. It's good to celebrate life too. But this sort of lament here is, is foreign to us that, uh, that uh, John is engaging here. Or actually, it's, it's uh, the, the kings of the world and the, the merchants of the world who are engaging in it. Babylon, it's, she is judged by God here. She dies for, uh, for, for three reasons. And, and, and if you're taking notes, you've already written these down, as I said, three reasons. Because you know that this is coming. This is from the very beginning of time. Up into right now, the three great idols, which cause us to stand under God's judgment as a world, are sex, money, and power. And these three things are brought out vividly in, in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Babylon runs on 
illicit sex. Verse 2 of chapter 17, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. It's popular for you old timers to say, whoa, things are bad right now in the culture. In Rome, it was even worse. Like the sexual mores of Rome were incredibly uh, degraded. Um, in, in the 1800s, when Pompeii was first began re- really being excavated, they were digging down through, uh, you know, through, through the, the ground to find these old buildings, and they would unearth a building, and the archaeologists would say, they would go in and they would look at the paintings and the mosaics on the wall, and they would say, this, is, this must be a brothel. The, the walls are covered with uh, like explicit sex scenes. And then they would uncover another house, and they'd be like, well, this is a brothel too. And before long, they realized that just, like a ton of people, just average ordinary citizens, as they're like, the, you know, you have like a print of Monet up in your house, would have pictures of explicit sex scenes up in their house. In the Roman Empire, this was just the norm. It was expected that if you were a man, especially a free man, that you were going to have multiple sexual partners. You were going to have a woman for a wife. She was expected to be completely chaste. It was her job to give you legitimate kids. You were going to have concubines. If you were rich enough to have slaves, male, female, little kids, it was expected that part of their slave responsibility would be to have sex with you as well. Rome ran on sexual immorality. Part of the slave industry, part of the bodies which John references here, is about sex trafficking. Rome also runs on accumulated money. I, don't, I guess I'll, I'll read these. It's super obvious in the lament here that in verse 3, the merchants of the last line of verse 3 of chapter 18, the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of Rome's luxurious living. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. And then there's that long list of, of, uh, of expensive items that Rome did trade in, including bodies, human souls. Verse 15, the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud because now their money is gone, their source of money is gone. Rome was fantastically wealthy. Also, oppressive power. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we've... Um, I talked about this a lot last week when we were talking about the beast. Rome runs on power. There's a reason why crucifixions happen. It's a way to let people throughout the empire know that if you, crucifixions are not done in private, they're done in public places because the, the, the citizens and the slaves in the empire need to know that if you cross Caesar, this is what happens to you. Caesar's whole empire is built upon his own flexed muscles. Is the United States, let me ask you this, is the United States any different? If the United States is different from Rome, it's a matter of degree, not quality. The United States runs on illicit sex. Sex trafficking is a $9.5 billion a year business in the United States. It is everywhere. It is in Edwardsville. There's websites you can get to, that you can get to, you can look at, which will train you how to look for sex trafficking. There are bodies being traded for the sexual pleasure of people who have the money to purchase those bodies. Usually in the United States, you can find podcasts and interviews of people who've luckily managed to escape or fortunately managed to escape the sex trafficking industry in the United States. Usually it's people from lower classes who are promised a shot at modeling or a a, a role in the entertainment industry. And then once they're to the destination, money's taken away from them. Any sort of opportunity to escape is taken away from them. Their existence is based upon the food that they get, the clothing they get is based upon how they uh, serve their pimps. Porn is 
explosive, still explosive and growing industry. And every time, every time we click on a porn, on a porn website, the advertisers there know we can advertise here, thus pumping more and more money into the porn industry. Sex scenes, now I sound like uh, the sermons from my Baptist church when I grew up here. And, part, part, I, and I have to watch myself because part of my discomfort with saying something like this and being embarrassed because I sound like a prude is that I've actually caved into the system. Sex scenes in movies are becoming more and more graphic all the time. We're becoming more and more desensitized to them. We just assume that if you watch a good movie, that sort of thing should be in there. And well, you know, that's not the way I would behave, but that's a part of art. That's a part of the culture. We just assume this. We listen to lyrics of pop music. Incredibly degrading. And we just assume that's part of like being a member of the culture, of enjoying this sort of thing. As a result, we Christians, even when we haven't participated completely in these things, have become desensitized. We now see biblical sexuality as passe. The Bible's teaching that sex is an incredibly powerful and wonderful and pleasurable gift of God, but designed for monogamous, male-female, covenant-committed, lifelong marriages. We now see that as passe. I've had actual LCMS members tell me when I say to them, sex outside of marriage or sex before marriage is wrong. Say the phrase, what is it? this isn't the 1950s anymore. It's the caving in to the same gods that ruled the Roman Empire. We've slowly but surely begun caving into them. As, definitely as a culture, but even to some extent as a church. Money, of course, as well. I don't have to tell you guys that we are a consumer society, that we see our value to a large extent in terms of the money that we have and the property that we own. We view ourselves and the people around us through this grid. Being sort of a little bit intimidated by people who are up here above us and a little bit superior by people who are here below us. We think of ourselves in terms of what we do, how we earn money. We've become, um, as I phrase, I talked about this with somebody, uh, uh, I think it might have been the men's Bible study, I can't remember. We've become human doings, not human beings. I'll give you a quick example of one of the ways that we've caved into us, and I could give you a million of these. I've taught in high school before, and I've taught in college too, and it's not uncommon to get a question from a student, why do I need to do this? Why do I need to take biology? I'm never going to use this. And everybody feels like that when you're in school, but why do you feel like that? Because you think, my job, the reason why I go to school, the reason why I went to high school or college, is to make money. And I'm not going to be a biologist, you know, I'm going to be a business person, I need to know this, so it's not going to help me make money, so what value is it? But do you see what you've done, us students, and the rest of us who felt like this when we were in school, you see what you've done? We've assumed that education's job is to make us money, that the goal of life is to make money. Instead of education being a way to round us as human beings, to make us faithful members of God's new creation, instead we see education as a tool to get money. And if it can't get me money, then what use is it to me? Well, if we cave into this sort of thinking, if we accommodate it in our students and in our own thinking, what we're doing is we're training ourselves is that the goal of life is to make money. And anything else that doesn't pertain to that is sort of peripheral. Well, I mean, there's vacations and a new set of golf clubs and all those things, but they take money, thus feeding back into this thing. All the things that we truly value are things that take money. We must not cave into this. Our culture runs on money. It's one of the great idols of the West. We must resist it. And of course, oppressive power too. Uh, the political parties, corporate America. I know I sound like a conspiracy theorist, 
political parties, corporate America, the entertainment industry demands that you fall in behind. There's a reason why porn is addictive. There's a reason why money is addictive. There's a reason why all these things are addictive, because the culture needs slaves. It only exists if we do what it tells us, if, if we do what it tells us to do. If the great prostitute that sits on the back of the beast owns us, then it owns us. And if it owns us, Jesus doesn't own us. So what are we going to do? First of all, we have to see it for what it is. I said this last week, I'll say it again. Once again, the great prophets of the 20th century, Marx, Nietzsche, and um, Freud, are correct. If there's no God, then all that exists is money, Marx, power, Nietzsche, and sex, Freud. And thus, responsibility, responsibility for the rest of us, the responsibility that I have for caring for you, for caring for my house, for caring for my family and friends, for caring my neighborhood, is reduced down to the bare minimum, power. Relationship, which I should value amongst everybody, has been reduced and boiled down to just pure sex. Stewardship has been boiled down to just money and property. We've become shells of who God created us to be. We've become skeletons. We've become empty-chested people. We've become walking dead men, gutted by the gods of this world. So what do we do? Chapter 18, verse 4 makes it pretty clear. This is the top of the second page of the Revelation reading. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. We must abandon the worldview of the prostitute. Now, a couple things here. This is not escapism. John is not saying that you need to flee Rome and live in some little monastery. This is not some sort of Benedict option where we can turn our backs on the rest of the world. After all, John, along with Peter and Paul, ministered in the biggest cities in the empire. Whatever this means, it doesn't mean escapism. It doesn't mean that we form our own little sort of enclave with our own black market economic system. We are to be engaged in the world. After all, we just read in John chapter 3, God loves the world. Whatever, whatever come out from her means, it doesn't mean to abandon. Second of all, though, it doesn't mean accommodation. As though really what we need is a new emperor. We need a new emperor who's not so much interested in sex, money, and power. Or we just need to train people to not be so invested in money. The problems are too deep-seated. The, prom the problems are not civic. The problems are not cultural. The problems are not primarily political. Those are symptoms. The problems are theological. The problem is idolatry. The one true God has been abandoned, and now the false gods of money, sex, and power have rushed in to fill the void and thus gutted us. What does it mean? It means to abandon the values and mindsets of the world around you and side with the Lamb. To confess that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is. To confess along with Caesar that sex is not Lord, attractiveness is not Lord, but Jesus is. That money is not Lord, but Jesus is. That power is not Lord, but Jesus is. Because, and this is the primary fuel of Romans 17 and 18, Rome will fall. It is guaranteed. Rome will fall, but Jesus will not. Do not take out the investment in the bankrupt company. Do not throw a bet on that team that's going to come in 30th in the league this year. Do not hitch your horse to Rome. It will fall. Sex, money, and power 
They will be exposed for the empty idols that they are, and God will show us that sex, money, and power are actually good gifts of his to be used underneath his authority. Rome will fall, abandon her. How does Rome fall? This should be encouragement to us. First of all, and this is the main point of, of how Rome falls. This is the final point of the sermon too. Rome falls through the defeat of the lamb. Chapter 17, verse 14. This is on the first page of our reading. Uh, end of the second full paragraph there. They, this is the beast, the second beast, and the dragon, as well as Rome, I guess, all four of them, they will make war on the lamb. And the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. So first of all, two things here real quick. First, this is ridiculous. Religious language, I know, aside, you've got to set that aside for a second and think about what it's really saying. Rome is going to make war on the lamb. It's the largest empire in the history of the world up to that point, and it's fighting against a lamb. It's like a Shel Silverstein poem, right? It's like, a poem, like, it's like, it would be like if the United States of America fought a war against a cat. It's just a lamb. Why is the empire so determined to kill it? Well, because Caesar sees what the lamb is in ways that sometimes we Christians don't even do it. A challenge to Caesar's own authority. This is why Jesus dies on the cross, which brings us to the second point. Remember who the lamb is. In the book of Revelation, it's not just a lamb. Going back to Revelation 4 when we first met him, he is the lamb who was slain. In other words, the lamb that Rome beat. Rome actually beats Jesus. Rome crucifies Jesus. But because Rome crucifies Jesus, Jesus wins. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, all the world's empires and powers are destroyed and Jesus rules and reigns. It's already happened. It's not yet completely happened. It won't until Jesus returns. But we live in the promise of it right now. We live, St. James Lutheran Church lives as a confession that the kingdom of God is the one true everlasting kingdom. And everything else that the world values around us is fading away, is temporary, is powerless to give hope and meaning and promise for the future. But the kingdom of God, ruled over by Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews, and now our king as well, will remain and stand forever. Well, how does this happen? How does the death of Jesus do this? Well, I don't know if I can really explain the mechanics of it. How does the slaughter of an innocent God-man actually beat all the powers of the universe? But I can promise you that it does. It's a key theme of Scripture. Can anybody think? I'm going to give you five seconds. Quiz time. Pop quiz time. Five seconds to think. Where is a place where it's super clear that the death of Jesus has defeated Rome? You may think of one real quick. You don't have to shout it out loud. This isn't children's church. All the gospels, somebody said it back here. All the gospels tell this story that when Jesus died, the Roman centurion at the scene, who is the representative of Caesar at the scene of Jesus' death, he's the leader of the whole execution contingent, when Jesus dies, says the remarkable phrase, truly this man was the son of God. Does he know what he's saying? I don't know if he knows everything he's saying, but he knows this much. He knows that Filius Divi, son of God, is one of the Latin titles for the Caesar. And when Jesus dies, somehow, let's call it the Holy Spirit if you want, somehow the Holy Spirit opens this guy's eyes to say, Caesar's not the son of God. This guy is the son of God. 
consistently throughout history, when God's people have joined themselves up with the death of Jesus Christ, not willingly, you don't ever throw yourself into martyrdom, but when it's happened inevitably, it's the book of Revelation talks about, God has ruled and reigned through that. The end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century, there was a monk from the east named Telemachus. Telemachus was visiting Rome from the east, and when he got to Rome, he was like, he says to the church, holy cow, you guys, what's up with what's going on over at the stadium, at the Colosseum? You're kidding me. Like, people go in there, and they kill each other, and like, everybody goes in there and watches them kill each other for entertainment. What's up with that? You know, and they're like, well, it's, you know, it's part of living in Rome. And Telemachus says, no. And he goes to the Colosseum. A, 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 a historian, a, a bishop, a histor- Theodora of Cyprus tells us a story. He goes to the Colosseum. This is in 404 AD. He goes to the Colosseum, and when the gladiatorial games start, Telemachus goes down, climbs over the wall, and goes into the middle and stands in between the combatants and begs them not to kill, kill each other. Well, the crowd goes nuts and stones him to death. But the emperor, Honorius at the time, is so moved by this guy's willing self-sacrifice to stop the death of people who he doesn't even know that in 404, because of this in 404 AD, he bans the gladiatorial games forever. It's actually the last gladiatorial game, Theodora says, is the one at which Telemachus dies. These examples go right up until now. Maximilian Kolb, Catholic priest, died in 1941 in Auschwitz. He was there because he was a Catholic priest and Hitler hated uh, uh, Christian priests and ministers unless they joined up with, uh, with the, the, the sanctioned church. Like Bonhoeffer, Maximilian Kolb was thrown into prison. While he was in prison, I think I've told you guys this story before, while he was in Auschwitz, somebody escaped. And as usual in Auschwitz, if somebody escapes, the typical response of the prison authorities was to say, we're going to kill, we're going to choose 10 people to execute as a way to deter escapees. You have friends and family there. If you know that if I leave, they're going to get killed, you're more likely to say. 10 people were randomly chosen. And when one Polish guy was chosen, he cried out, my wife and my kids. Maximilian Kolb, the Catholic priest, heard this and said, kill me instead. And so the guards said, okay. And the way that they were killed was they were put into a tiny cell in a basement and starved to death. No food. And slowly but surely, the 10 of them, one by one, died. The guy whose life was saved by Maximilian Kolb spent the rest of his life until the 1970s going into Christian churches and basically announcing the gospel, somebody died to save my soul. Maximilian Kolb. His life was completely changed by this. Now, is it defeat? Yes. Was Telemachus defeated? Yes. Was Jesus defeated on the cross? Yes. But that defeat happens to be, along with Bonhoeffer's defeat, Maximilian Kolb's defeat, Telemachus' defeat, and every other martyr, that defeat happens to be connected to Jesus' death, fueled with the power of Jesus' resurrection to rescue the world from the false idols of Rome, whatever Rome is now, sex, money, and power. You and I are faced with the choice now. Are we going to side with Rome? Are we going to side with the fake gods that are constantly calling to us? All of us in here are battling these three fake gods. We're no different than Abraham or Adam and Eve or the citizens of Rome. Are we going to side with the one true king, with Jesus, the Lord of the universe who gave his life to rescue us? 
Or are we going to continue to listen to the siren song of the culture? May we side with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to be faithful citizens of your kingdom. Forgive me, Father, for all the ways that I've caved in to the fake gods of my culture. Forgive me. Wash me clean from these. Empower me once again to have the eyesight to see the stability, the longevity, the beauty, the primacy, the glory, the everlasting power of your son Jesus' kingdom. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Let's stand for prayer. Father, we praise you for your greatness, for your bigness, for your power, for not just being powerful but being loving, for being powerful enough to rescue us from our sins and from the brokenness of our world, but being loving enough to be motivated to do it. For this, Father, we praise you, Lord, in your mercy. Be with our request this morning. Be with the things that are heavy on our hearts. There's lots of us here who are experiencing sickness and uh, um, physical brokenness. Lots of us who are experiencing mental health struggles, anxiety and depression and worry. Lots of us who are uh, in the middle of relationship problems or maybe not in the middle of them, but we can sense them coming on. Lots of us are worried about money. Lots of us are worried about our kids. Many of us are worried about our parents. Father, would you meet these needs according to your will and with that almighty loving power of yours? We pray especially this morning, Father, that you would be with Sarah Kate, who's beginning a new therapy um, this week, uh, and we pray that you would bless her and that you would allow this therapy to be beneficial and to be uh, healing. We also pray that you'd be with Mike Tiemann, who's uh, struggling with heart problems right now, and that you would pour strength and energy into him. We pray especially this morning, Father, that you would bless um, the family of Roger Mellencamp, Carol Rohr's brother, who passed away this week, and that you would give Doug and Carol hope in you and that whole family, that they would um, rest easy knowing that Roger is safe with you now, and that... You would encourage them and all of us by the power of your son's resurrection that you're going to make this good, that you are going to fix his body, that you're going to reunite us all together someday. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray all these things in the name of our uh, brother, uh, your son, Jesus, who shed his blood to rescue us from the powers of this world, who shed us blood so that we would no longer have to be slaves to an outside system, but now we could be children, your children, It could come into your throne room and pray these requests and talk to you because you're our Father. And so we pray these prayers like we pray all of our prayers in the name of our brother Jesus, amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally because he is now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity. All who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to you, O Lord, in the highest. And now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, Redeemer of the world, grant us peace. Amen. You may be seated.
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Look around. Find somebody you haven't spoken to recently. You know that you need community. Go ahead and build it. Go in peace.